Thank you, Dallas. Appreciate it, brother. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here today. Uh, before I get started, I want to mention a couple things. First of all, you know, it's been, uh, it's been 11 years now since we began uploading our sermons to the church website. Uh, through the years, we've heard uh, good things about uh, how people have used that. Um, for example, uh, Dallas Bros, we know that Dallas listens every Sunday. Uh, sometime, at least, uh, he listens to every Sunday's sermon sometime during the week. And uh, that's just a blessing to know that it encourages people and they find this very helpful and useful. And uh, occasionally we hear about other people. We're aware of other people that listen pretty much every Sunday or every week. And uh, uh, Dallas Henry has a friend named Betty Askey who is, who is uh, uh, unable to get to church, I guess, Dallas. Is she, is she here or is she in Maine? She's in Roanoke, Virginia, so Dallas knows people all over. You know, if you want to know people in different places, talk to Dallas. He knows people all over. So Bet, he, he, he's informed us that Betty listens every Sunday. Doesn't really have any association with us, but I guess Dallas said, hey, you ought to listen. It's a good place to hear good sermons. So what a blessing that is, and we're grateful for the technology that allows us to do this. And I'm grateful. I will, I will try to step back from my own role here and say I'm grateful for the power of of the preaching we have in this church. I think God has blessed us with good preachers, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that he uses us in that way. Now, most of you have read The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis. Many of us have, okay? It's a classic book. That book revealed tremendous insight into the devil's strategy and also into human nature. And uh, there's a website now that actually... uh, does the same kind of thing with similar humor. There's a lot of funny stuff in uh, the Screwtape Letters, too. Uh, it's called the Babylon Bee. Anybody been to the Babylon Bee before? It's kind of funny. Their motto was, I don't think they use it anymore, but I've seen it before, fake news you can trust. <laughs> I like that. But they're all about satire, okay? But sometimes people don't get the joke. There's a fact-checking website that fact-checked one of their stories. I thought, what's wrong with this picture? They don't get it. It's a, it's a joke, okay? And sometimes it even makes people angry. And that makes this story from a few months ago that the Babylon Bee had even more ironic. The headline reads, A new essential oil blend will help you stay really mad about everything. <laughs> and this essential oil blend is dubbed Outrage. It's a specialized blend containing authentic extract of coffee beans, sweat from Antifa protesters, and a hair plucked from the eyebrows of Alyssa Milano. (laughs) Other varieties have essence of scorpions, ferret rabies, vinegar, and organic LaCroix extract. And uh, one of the representatives for the company said, are you finding it difficult to read the day's news and get really worked up about it day after day? Then it's time for you to take a whiff of outrage. Our patented scent will cause you to find something to be upset about in any mundane news story or interaction with normal humans. Now, side effects of outrage include tweeting to your 134 followers about just how mad you are, arguing about stuff that doesn't matter on Facebook, and cutting off your relationships with your friends and family who disagree with you. Outrage manufacturers claim this is a feature of the product, not a bug, and that if you find yourself burning bridges with everyone you know as you rage about events that no one will remember in a few days, the product is working exactly as it's intended. 
Outrage has been endorsed by political pundits on both the left and the right, garnering rave reviews for its enraging properties. Upcoming scents include existential dread, <laughs> imposter syndrome, and screaming at the sky. We can look forward to those being released soon. So what this satirical story captures is something that's not really new, but something that's especially apparent in this season of history that we're living in. Everybody's angry about almost everything. And this really crosses the political spectrum, doesn't it? Liberals are mad at conservatives, and conservatives are mad at liberals. Atheists and secularists are mad at Christians, and Christians are mad right back at them. Tristan Harris is a former Google employee, and he testified on Capitol Hill about social media. In his testimony, he made some very interesting comments about Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. By far the most revealing comment he made was how he described these platforms. He called them outrage amplifiers. The emotional reaction, outrage, is the real-life essential oil like the joke we just looked at, the fake product we just mentioned, in social media's success. It's designed to amplify people's outrage. According to Harris, Twitter in particular is deliberately designed to spark, exploit, and perpetuate moral outrage. He cited one study showing that every outrage word a user adds to their tweet increases their retweet rate by 17%. Article after article has documented the rise of what some have called the call-out culture. It's the kind of online feeding frenzy that grabs people who use these platforms and motivates them, often in the space of hours, to destroy individuals' lives and careers for the smallest offenses. We've seen it happen, haven't we? If you read very much and you follow these things at all, it's not hard to come up with many, many different examples. In case you haven't noticed, <clears throat> and if you haven't, you must be hiding under a rock someplace, our country is extremely polarized over anything political and very divided over almost anything cultural. And often these issues are both political and cultural at the same time. Often people inject this outrage into our entertainment, too. Now, those of us who remember the 1960s remember deep division in those days. But it seems that what we're dealing with now has even more anger, even more outrage attached to these divisions. And you know what? I don't see this getting any better. In fact, it'll probably get worse between now and the November elections. Controversy is everywhere about everything. Everything's outrageous. People get upset about everything. And, you know, all of us, I think we can experience this, even in our day-to-day -day lives. We will have a lot of opportunities to voice our opinions about all these things that are in the news, that are cultural touch points, that are political issues. And God has a message for us in all this. It's in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, don't these verses seem like just the opposite of what we've been looking at? Just the opposite of anger, outrage, offense? We'll have plenty of chances to verbally take apart those who disagree with us. And let me say this too, certainly there are times we should speak because we are followers of the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. 
we need to stand for truth. We need to not be ashamed of Jesus. We need to not be ashamed of what he's clearly spoken to us in his word. But how we speak and why we speak is every bit as important as what we speak. Sometimes this means we do speak. Okay, we need to be discerning about that. But sometimes it means we just shut up. How about this, Proverbs 17, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise, and when he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. So my sermon, which usually goes 30, 40 minutes, I'm done. See how wise and intelligent I am? John Calvin said this concerning Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 that we just read, for nothing is more ready to occur than that unbelievers are driven from bad to worse through our imprudence and their minds are wounded so that they hold Christianity more and more in abhorrence. The gospel, my brothers and sisters, is offensive enough just all by itself, just with its reality, without us adding other reasons for people to be offended by the gospel like our anger. Let's not forget the purpose for this admonition that our speech be gracious so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. We're given a lot of opportunities to respond, aren't we? There's a lot of provocations in our daily lives, in our culture. Related to this is a clear understanding of anger and offense and outrage and how these things apply to us as believers. Now, actually, I've been working on this message since like August because I just finished a book in August uh, last year called Unoffendable. And in this book, the author makes the argument that anger is always sinful and that Christians should be virtually unoffendable. He wrote this in the book. He said, you can choose to be unoffendable. Sure, right, man. Choose to be unoffendable. Just, you know, choose as if it's really up to us. And then he writes, I found this offensive. (laughs) And then he also wrote, I sense a lot of people think this idea is stupid and they don't agree with me on this. And I sense this because lots of people say, that idea is stupid and I don't agree with you on this. Now I'm guessing some of you, when you first heard the idea that I just mentioned a moment ago, that he makes the argument that anger is always sinful, some of you probably thought the same thing I thought when I first began reading this book. Well, didn't Jesus get angry? Aren't there descriptions in the Word about God's wrath? Yes, of course, we do read in all four Gospels that Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers. And when he did that, you know what? He didn't just walk in and say, hey, do you guys think this is a good idea? I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't do that here, right? That's not how he responded. We read one of the accounts in Mark 11. Let me read it to you. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who, brought, who bought in the temple, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus was angry. He was angry. How many times have you pictured this? Very familiar passage, right? How many times have you pictured this and pictured Jesus kind of walking in and just saying, 
please don't do that here. No, you picture him kind of in a rage, right? I mean, he overturned the tables. Can you imagine somebody coming into a place and overturning the tables and not picture outrage and anger? Jesus was also described as angry in other accounts from the Gospels. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Again, he entered the synagogue. Isn't it interesting? We have a couple places where Jesus went in the synagogue and found something that made him angry. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And of course he stretched it out. He restored the hand, and the man was healed. And this made the Pharisees mad. They went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So interestingly, when Jesus got mad, they got mad right back at him. We read in Psalm chapter 119, verse 53, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Hot indignation. Now, if it was just indignation, you might think, hmm, hot indignation. I mean, that kind of implies anger, doesn't it? We read in Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And then we read, this is the most familiar passage, the first one that I thought of when this uh, man who wrote this book said, anger is always sinful. I thought of this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So while... This book's argument, I have to admit, as a matter of fact, I remember having a conversation with Steve Sperber and telling him I was still in process thinking about this and thinking, you know, this guy's pretty persuasive. His argument that anger is always sinful is pretty persuasive. But examining that claim in the light of Scripture, I have to say that I disagree. Okay? But there's a very significant caveat here. Anger may not always be sinful, but most of the time it is. That's where I've come to. This be angry and do not sin is similar to the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now think about that. That verse is not a command to love ourselves. You often hear it presented that way. You need to love yourself. It says love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? It's a recognition that we already do love ourselves and we need to love our neighbors just as much as we already love ourselves. So I think this is a very similar thing. Okay? There's this reality that we will get angry. That's why we have the warning that in our anger, we can't let it become sinful. Anger can so easily and so quickly become sinful that it's a dangerous thing to handle. It's kind of too hot to handle for us, okay? That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians that when we hang on to our anger, what are we doing? We're giving the devil an opportunity to do what? To lead us into sin. So while we do see these places in Scripture where anger is not necessarily sinful, we have to be honest in examining the whole counsel of God. And in doing that, we see there's an even greater volume of Scripture that says anger is sinful. You know what? Isn't it true that we kind of tend to look for loopholes? Even in Scripture, we look for excuses. We try to sanctify our excuses for our behavior and our attitudes. Well, Jesus was angry. Moses was angry. The Word says, be angry, okay? But we must always examine, again, the whole counsel of God. And I think if we do that, we have to recognize that 
anger is most often described as sinful. I also think we need to realize that God can be holy and angry in ways that we cannot. God's allowed to be jealous. God's allowed to be angry. He's allowed to be wrathful. He's even allowed to be vengeful. But for Him, in total righteousness and total holiness, that's He's the only one that can do that. Okay, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We're not God. So Scripture gives us dozens of warnings about anger, and we're just going to quickly go through a sampling of those here this morning. Psalm 37, verses 7 and 8. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way. That's where anger comes from sometimes, doesn't it? Well, this guy's getting away with something, and why should I have to not get away with that? Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. We read another uh, familiar passage in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Now wait a minute. Jesus is telling us here in this passage that you and I can be 100% murder free. Anybody here ever murdered anybody? I don't think so, right? Anybody here ever been angry with anybody? Still, we can face the wrath of God if our lives are marked by anger, bitterness, insult, and rage. And that's not all Jesus says about anger. As he does so often, he takes this one commandment. You know, we can look at the Ten Commandments and say, if I'm honest, I've got to see myself in this one, and in this one, and in this one, and in this one. But there's one that most of us can say, I don't see myself there. I've never murdered anybody, right? But he takes that commandment we thought we could feel pretty good about, into, and he takes that commandment, he turns into one we all feel pretty bad about. Which one of us hasn't ever been unrighteously angry? This week, maybe. We read in Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is a good long list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Wow, right in the middle of this list. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like those. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we see the opposite. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Would you agree that anger is of the flesh and of those passions and of those desires? We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We read in James chapter 1, 
verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And finally, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You get the idea here? You get the idea? Anger is almost always sinful. And you know what? Hopefully those of you here this morning can be just as honest as I'm going to be with you now. This has been something I've battled with most of my life. When I was a teenager, or maybe 13 or 14, I remember one time I realized how powerful and consuming anger can be. My parents had a hard and fast rule in our house. Never hit your sister. There's me with my sister and my dad. Never hit your sister. I could wrestle and fight with my brother. I could maybe even hit my brother. And there may be consequences for that depending on the circumstances. But I could never hit my sister, ever, for any reason. Even those times, and it happened more often than I care to admit, and more often than she probably would care to admit, when I thought she really deserved a good smack. Well, my sister, being what little sisters can be, knew how to push my buttons. And whether it was conscious or not, I don't believe it was, but I'm not attributing that to her. She also seemed to realize that even when she made me angry, I couldn't retaliate in any way. And there was one time when I was very angry with my sister, and I have no recollection at all of what this was about, why I was mad at her. But I remember I was so angry, I was seated in, the, in my uh, car, I was so angry that I pounded the dashboard of my parents' Chevy and I cracked it. That's how hard I hit it. Yeah. So rather than get a, uh, in trouble for hitting my sister, I got in trouble for that. My anger came out in physical violence, but not against my sister. It was that poor defenseless dashboard. <laughs> now, I'm not proud of that. And I wish I could say that, gee, that was before I was a believer in Christ, so I don't deal with anger like that anymore. But no, I still, even as a believer in Christ, still have anger issues. Even as an adult, you know, I've only broken a bone once in my life. Most of us break, most boys especially, break a bone somewhere uh, during their childhood or something, doing something boy-like. Well, I did it as an adult. I slammed my hand against a wall in, of all things, a basketball game when I was playing in it about 25 years ago, and I had a small hairline fracture in my hand. I did it in anger, probably over what I considered to be a referee's stupid call. Now, isn't that stupid? That was me. I'm not proud of that either. I mention these things to note that I'm preaching to myself today as we consider these ideas of anger and offense. I'm also guessing that many of the rest of us here deal at least to some degree with this issue of anger. Maybe it doesn't come out in physical violence. Maybe it just comes out in our attitudes, maybe in the things we say. Um, So, if not... You say, well, that's not really a problem. Don't begin to tune me out because, wait a minute, there's another element related to anger that we've touched on briefly. I want to spend a few more minutes on here this morning too, and that's offense. Now, taking offense may not involve the kinds of violent anger I just described, but even though I was not persuaded by the author we mentioned a moment ago, his book, Unoffendable, I wasn't uh, persuaded by his argument that anger is always sinful, but it's most often sinful. I was more persuaded by his argument that Christians should be the most unoffendable people on earth. 
we need to give up our right to be offended. And this is related to anger because when we're offended, we're holding on to anger in some form or fashion. Giving up our right to be offended hits very hard against our pride and it forces us to be humble. Forfeiting our rights to anger causes us to deny ourselves. So think about this. Anger and offense offer us a sense of moral superiority. That's why we some call, sometimes call these instances righteous anger. Okay? But here's the problem. When that righteous anger is pointed at somebody else, it's pretty tricky. I tend to think that my anger is more righteous than somebody else's. My arguments, you know, anybody else here like this? My arguments are very convincing to me. In those early moments when I'm getting angry about something, it always seems righteous. It always seems somehow justified. So anger is a feeling, and it comes upon us, and it tells us we're being denied something we should have. So anger will happen. We're human. We can't help it necessarily, but we can't keep it or hang on to it because we often can't handle it righteously. Here's another confession I'm not proud of. It happens in traffic all the time. I was waiting for, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more amens in here than just the one from Dallas we heard. (laughs) I was waiting for the left turn arrow just last week, and when the light changed, the guy in front of me just sat there, probably on his cell phone texting. So after several seconds, I I honked my horn at him to wake him up, and he gets through the light just in time, but I'm stuck there through another whole cycle because he was asleep at the wheel. So my response, anger. I was mad. What an idiot. What a jerk. What a twit. Not me. Him. Right? But why? Think about it. Because he inconvenienced me. Wah, wah, wah. And he made me sit through another cycle waiting for the left turn arrow. So, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I have to say I can't call that righteous anger. No way in the world can I call that righteous anger. Probably more often than not, our anger is directed at someone who hurts us, maybe, or maybe just inconveniences us. Jesus, on the other hand, what did he get angry at? He got angry at sin, and he got angry at unbelief. I guess that's where we could say that there can be such a thing as righteous anger, even though, as we noted earlier, we have to be careful how we let that happen. Today, just a few days from the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion, I can't help but think of the fact that there are still millions of babies being aborted worldwide each year. That's a travesty. And I've got to say, sometimes it makes me angry. How about crimes against kids? How about sex trafficking? How about crimes against the elderly? You know, it made me really mad when I heard just a few, several weeks ago, I guess, that someone broke into Bud Green's house and hurt him. You know, that made me angry. But most of the rest of my anger is clearly unrighteous. The other guy's always wrong, and everybody's an idiot but me. Yet I can't escape the reality that I'm not entitled to my anger against whoever that other guy is. Why? Because God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me. Being angry and offended all the time, if you think about it, it's kind of exhausting. Do you know those people who are... Now, I have anger issues. I admit it. I freely admit it. But I'm not angry all the time. Anybody know people who seem to be angry all the time? doesn't take much to 
get them, get them worked up. If I'm going to exhaust myself, I don't want it by being angry. I'd rather do something productive about those relatively few times where I may be able to argue that my anger is truly righteous. That's one reason I spent more than 15 years on the board of men that Diane is now the president of. Rather than just getting righteously angry, I address the issue directly. So it's not that I think that things like abortion, like sex trafficking, crimes of all kinds are right or good. It's just that it's not about me, okay? I don't want to be constantly threatened. I don't want to be constantly scandalized, constantly angry at someone else's sinful or immoral or criminal behavior. So returning to what we looked at near the beginning of today's message, what if Christians were known as people you couldn't offend? Think about that. What if we were unoffendable? What if when some politician or some Hollywood star or celebrity says something unkind or hateful or just wrong about Christians or our beliefs? What if when that happened we wouldn't be like the rest of the world and automatically respond with outrage? After all, that's just unbelievers behaving like unbelievers, right? They're dead in their sins, just like I was before I came to Christ. We should know this, brothers and sisters. John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. The point is that Jesus knows we're sinners. No one needed to tell him that. That's why he came. It's why we needed redeeming. So think about this. Maybe those who seek to follow him could take that same approach. Perhaps a big part of being less offendable is seeing the human heart for what it is, untrustworthy, unfaithful, prone to selfishness. I got it now. Now we don't have to be shocked. Why are we so naive about this sometimes? Now, some of you who know the Babylon Bee may also know The Onion. You know The Onion? You ever read The Onion? That's another satirical website with fake news stories. And there was a headline in The Onion some years back, actually, that said, Neighbors Remember Serial Killer as Serial Killer. (laughs) Now, a quote from the story said, When asked about him, his neighbor said he had always seemed like the serial killer type of fellow. Now, that's funny because it's the total opposite of what you read in the real news, right? When you see these things, whenever you see a story about a crime, the neighbor always seems to say, oh, he seems so nice. I can't imagine him ever doing anything like this. Or there's a shooting in a neighborhood, and someone who lives there says, this is such a nice neighborhood. I can't believe something like that could happen here. Why wouldn't it happen here? Why wouldn't it happen here? Why wouldn't someone commit a horrible crime? Scripture tells us, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The word declares that all have sinned. All in the Greek means all. Okay? All have sinned, right? And no one is righteous. So why are we surprised when wicked, sinful people behave like wicked, sinful people? And related to our theme this morning, why are we outraged when wicked, sinful people express wicked, sinful ideas. Here's another way to say that. I want to be like Jesus in this verse we read from John just a moment ago. I want to be able to say, no one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. 
when we live in the reality of forgiveness, the forgiveness of God through Christ, it should be harder for us to get angry with others. Our anger is often directly proportional to our perception of our own relative innocence. Isn't that true? It's hard for gratitude and anger to coexist in the same heart. I'm grateful that God has redeemed me. I pray he redeems those who are apart from Christ, without hope and without God in this world. So not giving in to anger about the deep cultural divides we have, when we have two, how many times have you seen this recently? When we have two groups of people see the exact same thing and come away with completely different perspectives. Not getting angry about that isn't the same thing as avoiding conflict or just being nice. Maybe it's supposed to be part of the way we love and serve people. Maybe it's even part of the way we reach people. We're not pretending that there are no differences. We're not affirming wrong views of the world or wrong views of sin. Now that would be wrong too, okay? If we affirm sin or we celebrate sin, that would be wrong too. The differences are real. So we're not minimizing the differences. We have a deep cultural divide because people see things completely differently. But maybe God hasn't gotten a hold of some of those people who are on the other side. We need to remember that outrage is born of anger and that anger is most often a sin. As believers, what do we do with sin? We fight it, right? We flee from it. We ask God to give us the grace to resist it and we overcome sin. We don't give into it and wallow in it. We also don't make other people's sin an occasion for our sinning. That's what we do sometimes when we get angry. They're sinners, so we get angry, and then we sin. A key question to ask when we face any issue that's making us angry is this. What is it that I want right now that I'm not getting? Well, I want the world to go my way, right? Who doesn't want that? We all want that. I want the world to serve me. When it doesn't, sometimes I might get angry. Then, of course, there's the principle that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? And that's the principle that we always examine our own hearts first. That's not to say that the brother doesn't have a speck in his eye, but we might have a log. How can we see that speck clearly until we get that log out first? And if that passage goes on to say, then you can help him. So... What do we do first? Where have we failed the way others fail us? Also importantly, there's this theme, and we've touched on it with a couple passages we've already looked at, this theme of forgiveness. Anger can't live in an atmosphere of forgiveness. Jesus could have been very angry with those who crucified him. But he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How many times in this cultural moment, this season of history that we live in, when everybody's outraged over everything, should we pray that prayer? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If God is indeed transforming us each day to be more like Jesus, we become more able to forgive like Jesus. Amen? We become more able to do good to others. We become more able to give glory to Him and to bring glory to Him. Anger is so often about getting what we want or being right or demanding that others treat us the way we think we deserve. 
if we're unoffendable, is it still possible that people will wrongly speak ill of you and use their anger to turn others against you? Well, probably. So we're not going to win everything by being unoffendable. As a matter of fact, sometimes we'll lose if you want to break it into a win or lose kind of argument. But by not retaliating with offense and anger, by not getting outraged, what are we doing? We're simply trusting ourselves to the righteous judge of the universe. Let God take care of justice in these situations. We don't have to fix the world, folks. And again, that's not to say we don't ever have responsibilities. A lot of us in this room are involved in directly trying to fix some of the problems in this world. But we don't have to fix everything. That's not our job. We, on the other hand, do as Jesus did because we're called to do that. Jesus didn't lose, and neither will imitating him be a loss for us, regardless of how others treat us or regardless of how whatever we're angry about turns out for us. Peter also says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So, you know, we needn't always respond to every provocation. We needn't say everything we think, even when we're right. But when it's right to respond, and there are times when it is, we should never respond in anger. We're called to respond to people as Jesus did. And here's what Jesus did. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let that be our hallmark, brothers and sisters. Let that be how we behave like Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that your word gives us about anger. Father, we thank you that there is such a thing as righteous anger, but Father, that so often we cannot handle anger. So we pray, Father, you'd give us discernment and not uh, cause us to look for those loopholes and to justify our own anger when so much of our anger is truly unrighteous and it doesn't achieve in any way, shape, or form the righteousness of God. Father, help us to be a people who are unoffendable, not just uh, about the issues of the day, but even in our daily lives, Father, because we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And we needn't, Father, be angry about these things because we trust you, not because we can't fix something. So, Lord, we pray that these words would resonate in our hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word this morning and help us, Father God, to be a people who uh, have conversations that are full of grace. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.